Hello and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that's going to take us through the first half of Act 4 of The Taming of the Shrew. For more on Act 3, listen to our previous episode. Um, uh, we, Kate and Petruchio are officially married. Um, they're off on their honeymoon, question mark? Uh, they did not attend their own wedding feast, and everyone was making fun of them. And now, here we are, Act 4. Seems like a, a great place, if I were directing this, to put the intermission is um, at the end of Act 3. Because Act 4, it's like, aha, we're in a new location. We're no longer in Padua? Yeah. That's what we just did. Yeah. <laughs> we come to Wive it Wealthily in Padua. We have wived it. And now we're going back to somewhere. Petruchio's estate, I guess. So, without further ado, Gromio, Grumio. It's so difficult because there's a Gremio and a Grumio. So, Grumio, and then Curtis, take it away whenever you're ready. Fie, fie on all tired jades, on all mad masters and all foul ways. Was ever man so beaten? Was ever man so rayed? Was ever man so weary? I am sent before to make a fire, and they are coming after to warm them. Now were not I a little pot and soon hot, my very lips might freeze to my teeth, my tongue to the roof of my mouth, my heart in my belly, ere I should come by a fire to thaw me. But I, with blowing the fire, shall warm myself. For considering the weather, a taller man than I will take cold. Hello, ho, Curtis. Who is that called so coldly? A piece of ice. If thou doubt it, thou mayst slide from my shoulder to my heel, with no greater a run but my head and my neck. A fire, good Curtis. Is my master and his wife coming, Grumio? Oh, I, Curtis, I, and therefore, fire, fire, cast no on no fire, water. Is she so hot as shrew as she's reported? She was, good Curtis, before this frost. But thou knowest winter tames man, woman, and beast. For it hath tamed my old master and my new mistress and myself, fellow Curtis. Away, you three-inch fool. I am no beast. Am I but three inches? Why, thy horn is afoot, and so long am I at the least. But wilt thou make a fire, or shall I complain on thee to our mistress? Whose hand, uh, she being now at hand, Thou shalt soon feel to thy cold comfort for being slow in thy hot office. I prithee, good Grumio, tell me, how goes the world? A cold world, Curtis, in every office but thine, and therefore fire. Do thy duty and have thy duty, for my master and mistress are almost frozen to death. There's fire already, and therefore, good Grumio, the news. Why, Jack boy, oh boy, and as much news as wilt thou. Come, you are so full of coney catching. Why, therefore fire, for I have caught extreme cold. Where's the cook? Is supper ready, the house is trimmed, the rushes strewed, cobwebs swept, 
the serving men in their new fustings, the white stockings in every officer's wedding garment on, be the jacks fair within, the jills fair without, the carpets laid and everything in order. Already and therefore, I prithee, news. First, know my horse is tired. My master and mistress fallen out. How? Out of their saddles into the dirt, and thereby hangs a tail. Let's have it, good Grumio. Lend to thine ear. Ear? There. <laughs> this is to feel a tale, not to hear a tale. And therefore tis called a sensible tale. And this cuff was but to knock at your ear and beseech thee listening. Now I begin. Imprimus, we came down a foul hill, my master riding behind my mistress. Both of one horse? What's that to you? Why, a horse. Tell thou the tale? But hadst thou not crossed me, thou shouldst have heard how her horse fell, and she under her horse. Thou shouldst have heard, and how miry a place, and how she was bemoiled, how he left her with a horse upon her, how he beat me because her horse stumbled, how she waited to the dirt to pluck him off, how he swore, how she prayed, that she never prayed before, how I cried, how the horses ran away, how a bridle was burst, how I lost my crupper with many things of worthy memory, which now shall die in oblivion, and thou returned unexperienced to thy grave. By this reckoning, he is more shrewd than she. Aye, and that thou and the proudest of you all shall find when he comes home. But what talk I of this? Call forth Nathaniel, Joseph, Nicholas, Philip, Walter, Sugar Shop, and the rest. Let their heads be sickly combed, their blue coats brushed, and their garters of an indifferent knit. Let them curtsy with their left legs, and not to presume to touch a hair of my master's horse tail till they kiss their hands. Are they ready? They are. Call them forth. Do you hear? Ho! You must meet my master to countenance my mistress. Why, she has a face of her own. Who knows not that? Thou, it seems, it calls for company to countenance her. I call them forth to credit her. Why, she comes to borrow nothing of them. Okay, let's pause here, because there's a lot to unpack in this. This, this reminds me of um, Gremio giving the narration about what happened in the church, right? It's like, we can't put a horse falling down a hill and people falling off a horse on stage. So we're going to hear about it from Grumio. So we meet a new character here, Curtis, who seems to me to be like sort of the under butler, as it were, the sort of guy who's like Grumio is is the the one who communicates with Petruchio, but then Curtis communicates between Grumio and the rest of the servants is the impression that I get just from their interaction. But clearly it's indicated that Petruchio has a very large household. Uh, staff right a huge number of servants they all have matching uniforms like this this dude has money too so i'm 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 terribly sorry to richard burton and elizabeth taylor in that uh you know like when they come to the house it's like a total pigsty hovel in that particular version which doesn't really resonate actually with what is in the text so yeah uh grayson go ahead any any thoughts about about <laughs> poor frozen grumio 
Yeah, so uh, I've been rehearsing Malvolio for next month in Santa Fe, and I certainly found Grumio's lines and character more difficult to figure out than Malvolio. I mean, Malvolio, any given line is pretty straightforward, but uh, Grumio, the words seem quite simple, but they're really sophisticated, I think. It's certainly not slapstick. I think clowns, uh, this is the first one I've tried. I think they must be uh, very difficult to play. Oh, in yeah. Shakespeare's, in Shakespeare's plays. Definitely. Uh, but uh, as far as Grumio, I mean, clearly he's feisty. And he's very chatty. He's uh, the number five character. Uh, he's even ahead of Lucencio and Baptista in terms of lines. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's sort of a mini uh, Petruchio. He likes to be provocative. He likes to beat the servants, etc. I think he does want to please his master and servant, mm. and he's loyal, but he's uh, feckless. I think you know, not very effective. And to me, I think he's mentally challenged. <laughs> I don't think I don't think his brain is quite right. Um, is that what's here, going on? <laughs> What's that? What's that? Is that what's going on here, you think? Because it's pretty weird. Well, we hear what he's thinking, I think. Uh, and he perceives uh, meanings that the rest of us, I don't think, would, uh, would see. I mean, I think we are hearing what he's thinking, but I think his thoughts are garbled and confused. And mm. Over and over, I mean, the knock at the gate right at the beginning and Yotes have eaten the horses, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't take his words at face value. To me, they're warped mm. somehow. I think that, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And Carol, I'm going to get to you in just a second here. I I do think that it's important that Grumio has an ability with language, right? He plays with words in a similar mm -hmm. way as Petruchio mm -hmm. does, which is why we get, and I think we we with the whole knock at the gate, knock me here, like he's playing with the, to, to quote 12th night, you know, you can turn it a word inside out like a glove. He's playing with the sort of double meanings of words, um, which is something that young Shakespeare really loved to do, right? Um, to, to quote <laughs> one of our, our uh, podcast participants, Sam Gilroy, it's really, it's really fun to look at the sort of juvenilia, right? Of the, the young, young playwright flexing his muscles here and like what he chooses to do there isn't as much I would argue there isn't as much character development as there is verbal skills being experimented in these in these early plays like that to me is 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 almost what sort of separates the super early Shakespeare plays from the later plays is is how the playwright learns to develop character as opposed to just like having the character be about the words that they that they speak and, and the way in which they speak into sort of greater emotional depths I think is what we get into the middle and the late place um that's obviously all of this information is coming from the text and my own interpretation of it but that that is my my sense that young playwright Shakespeare really loves playing with words and puns and a lot of these are puns that we don't understand, unfortunately, because <laughs> a lot of the meanings don't exist for us anymore. Um, Carol, and then Will, please. Yeah, I, I would agree. One of the things uh, that we were looking at early on from that first scene where the knock me scene, 
And he asks if any have rebused your worship. And that reminded us of Dogberry, yeah. you know, that that kind of. But then we decided pretty quickly that, you know, whereas Dogberry really is an idiot, <laughs> Grumio is is more like a sort of proto festi slash dromeo. So there was that combination of um, the clever servant and the, the fool who plays with words, the corrupter of words. And he's got all those little asides um, early on that are, are full of just twisting the language and twisting what Petruchio is saying. So I think he's I think he's clever. And I think this scene um, reminded us of the nurse Juliet scene in R&J where the nurse has come back. She's got the news about Romeo and Juliet wants the news and she wants the news now. And, yeah. and the nurse just you know, plays with her. And I think Grumio is playing with Curtis. Curtis, I think, is um, not not perhaps the sharpest pencil in the box, but <laughs> um, Grumio has fun with him. Yeah. So yeah, Will, go ahead. I just, I may be thick here, but I just don't understand what the joke is. Like, is what's happening here that... Like, I understand when he gets into the story and everything with, with the horse and everything, but the first couple of pages where he comes in and Curtis comes in and there's just like a really, like they keep talking about how cold it is and like, what is going on here? What's, yeah. what's good? <laughs> it's a really good, it's a really good question. So we have this, yeah. And I love like Curtis comes in and is like, who is it that calls so coldly? Which <laughs> is just like... <laughs> how can how can one call coldly? It's, it's kind of silly, but there is this there is this thought. Thou knowest, winter tames man, woman, and beast. For it hath tamed my old master, mm -hmm. and my new mistress, and myself. Follow Curtis, right? So in this metaphor, Grumio is the beast, Kate is the woman, and Petruchio is the man, and they're all being tamed by ice, right? Because Part of the thing, as, as we're going to get later in the scene, is that the idea that like dry, burnt meat is creates collar, that all of these characters are very sort of quick, to, passionate and quick to anger, which means they would be choleric, which means they're dominated by fire. So they're they're dulled, they're tamed by cold, by cold water, cold air, you know, cold earth. Um so th the idea that I get from this is that all of these characters are off balance, right? Their humors in the Elizabethan sort of worldview are all a bit off. And we're going to hear Petruchio literally say for tis a choleric meat or something like that. And that all of them are sort of dominated by their impulse to anger and passion and violence, right? Um, so I think that's to sort of just establish that both Petruchio and Kate are being tamed by the coldness, right? Mm -hmm. Which also makes us question the title of the play, right? The, the indication that it's about Catherine being tamed. I think there's also a sense there that Petruchio is maybe part of this being tamed by cold also like where are they are they like in the italian alps what's going on why is it so freaking cold you know it's like, what's going on so but then like yeah the, the whole interchange between them is the joke here that curtis is trying to ask for news and grumio just, just keeps, keeps putting it off yeah. yeah like wow yeah that's funny it's comedic yeah <laughs> 
It's comedic. This um, is the comedic interlude. I think I I would I I understand where you're coming from, Will. I think for me, I would definitely find the most of the comedy in the way this was staged, right? So if Curtis yeah. is just like sitting there, like, tell me this story, yeah. and yeah. Grumio is like, hey, here, let me tell you everything else, and are all the things, hey, you're not looking at the fire. And then he goes and he starts tending to the fire, and he's like, so tell me the news. And then he gets wrapped up in the story, and he's like, you're not doing the fire. So to me, it's like you would have to like work around what the status relationship is between these characters and how best to stage that in a way that sort of made this about two people not communicating in the same language to each other, which is also kind of what the play has been about too thus far. Like this is like he wrote this because he had some comedic actor who wanted a little bit, and so he just yeah, you know, definitely. <laughs> I definitely get like the the the, the Grumio was probably played by Will Kemp, who was the clown, the company clown, and of course, as we know, he had a falling out with Shakespeare, right? Yeah. And did a dance off to Norwich, did a jig all the way to Norwich. And there's a lot of there's a lot of scholars that think that the the bit in Hamlet, um, in Hamlet's advice to the players about like, let the clowns not speak more than is set down for them is like a direct like fuck you camp like <laughs> you know just for like you get the sense that there were a lot of lotsy in here right lotsy meaning sort of tricks yeah. from commedia that there were like there were just like little bits that they would work into the text but this is so dependent this whole section and it's really difficult is so dependent on wordplay and us understanding that a lot of these words that they're speaking and these phrases that they're speaking are very contemporary for, for Shakespeare's audience, but not so much for us. Yeah, go ahead, Grayson. Yeah, could, I wonder if we could go back to the opening monologue because that puzzled yeah. me as well. And you know, I mentioned before, I, I don't take his words at face value and that they're warped somehow. And um, in the opening monologue, I tried you know, seven or eight different tactics for each thought. And it really surprised me the tactics that surfaced. Uh, for instance, there's a line, but I with blowing the fire shall warm myself. So, I mean, I could be hopeful, could be boastful. What seemed uh, to speak to me was lure, to lure someone, but I with blowing the fire shall warm myself. Mm -hmm. That's the, and so there's layers under there that are under the words, I think, that, that are behind uh, what he's saying. And and the obsession with the coldness too is is yeah. is important to me. And I because it's mentioned so many times, it, it's to me it's like the yeah. playwright going, "It's cold. Everything's cold. Everyone's being changed because of the cold." You know, it's like kind yeah. of hitting us over the head with a hammer. Yeah, yeah, Carol. Yeah, I, I think if you if you take the perspective that if you're on stage all by yourself speaking to the audience you are speaking that character's truth and his truth is he's cold. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a lousy trip. I Sometimes mean, Sometimes truth is not complicated. Them, you know, they were cold. running out of the wedding with their swords drawn. And now they have arrived at Petruchio's and my God, it was a horrible, horrible journey. So I, I think that this speech really is his letting us know what a bad trip it was and how frozen he is. And, you can deduce from it that everybody else probably is too. 
But there is a fire going, correct? And it no, seems no. Right no. the house there's a fire in the fireplace. But Curtis says there is a fire, right? There's this whole thing where he's like, Oh, the fire, get the fire, and he's like, There is a fire. Where is that? There's there's fire ready there's and there's fire ready. Yeah. It seems to me like like he's come in, there's a fire going, and he's trying to warm up by the fire, but Curtis doesn't seem cold. Like he's been inside, there's a fire going, and it's just Grumio is like coming in out of the snow and he's cold because he's been outside. You, you but, can't get enough fire when you're that cold. He <laughs> really can't. I mean, is that what is that the joke that like Grumio is cold and Curtis isn't? Is that part of it? You've got Grumio's been on this horrible frozen journey and he's come home to a nice warm house and nobody in the house is cold. He's miserable. Yeah. Right, that seems like it could be kind of funny, right? <laughs> sure. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. I think to me, the, the most important part is Grumio's telling the tale of what happened. Yeah. That we, in fact, you know, no offense to any actors, but I, I would probably cut this section to be completely about oh. the speech that this whole thing is leading to this speech, this this narrative description. Her horse fell, she fell underneath the horse. So she literally got squashed by a horse, right? This is really bad. They fell into a swamp. They were covered in mud. He left her with the horse fallen over on her and instead started beating up Grumio and saying like, how dare you not look after her horse? She got up. She tried to pull him off of, so she's now, instead of beating someone, this is the first indication that she's trying to prevent violence against another person, right? So this is really important information. How she prayed that never prayed before, to me is like, that's the most important line in this whole section. Um, how I cried, how the horses ran away. To me, like the funniness is just that like, this is clearly the worst journey ever. The vehicle fell on you you got you fell into the mud the 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 car ran away like fell into the swamp like everything just went wrong and and then grumio tells this tale and is like and other things happened too and i won't tell you what they are which is just to me seems like a very singular weird thing to say and then he just keeps there is the implication also that he is more shrew than she by this by this reckoning right by you telling that that he is more of a shrew than she is and grumio responds i and that thou and the proudest of you all shall find when he comes home as if like there is a warning there to expect a new behavior from petruchio which is also very important to me that's the other important part like he is behaving in a different way than he normally does. So be prepared for that. Um, and then we have a whole thing with with the face and the countenance and the blah, 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 blah. You know, a lot of wordplay, a lot of wordplay. <laughs> but to me, it seems important that Petruchio is acting differently than he normally does. So be prepared for that, Curtis. And also all the stuff about Kate, don't believe it all. Um, because she just prayed for him to stop beating me and that's that was new right that was new behavior so we're noting behavioral shifts through this strange wordplay e <laughs> section and then we just have to me that so this next section with the four or five serving men 
it's just like the stage is overwhelmed with people, right? We're, we now have seven people on stage before Kate and Petruchio enter. So it's just, it's, and you hopefully, you would hope as a director to have them all be like different shapes and sizes so that there was just like this, this motley group and put like the shortest person next to the tallest person, et cetera, et cetera, sort of create this whole mishmash of, of these different characters. Um, but then after Grumio also says, you know, call forth. And then he gives all the names of these guys. Then he, he pretends like he doesn't know their names too. In this next section, he's like, Hey, you, what's up you. And hello, you, you know, so like, it's a very, it's a very <laughs> odd start to an act, but let's get into it. Let's get into it. And let's, let's uh, pay a lot of attention to the way in which, Petruchio and Kate interact with the servants because I think that's really that's really important. Um, so we all know who our servants, who's playing which servant. Okay, cool. Cheers. Have fun. <laughs> Welcome home, Grumio. How now, Grumio? What, Grumio? Fellow Grumio. How now, old lad? Welcome you. How now, you? Uh, what you? Hello, you? And thus much for greeting. Now my spruce companions is already in all things neat. All things is ready. How near is our master? In in hand, alighted by this, and therefore be not coxpassion silence. I hear my master. Where be these knaves? What, no man at door to hold my stirrup, nor to take my horse? Where's Nathaniel? Gregory, fill it. Here, 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 sir. Here. Uh, here, here, sir. Here, sir. Here, here, sir. Here, sir. Loggerheaded and unpolished grooms. What? No attendance, no regard, no duty? Where's the foolish knave I sent before? Here, sir, as foolish as I was before. You peasant swain, you horse and malt horse drudge. Did I not bid thee meet me in the park and bring along these rascal knaves with thee? Uh, Nathaniel's coat, sir, was not fully made, and Gabriel's pumps were all unpinked at the heel. There was no link to the color in Peter's hat. And Walter's dagger was not come from sheathing. There were none fine but Adam, Rafe, and Gregory. The rest were ragged, old, and beggarly. Yet, as they were, here they are come to meet you. Go, rascals, go and fetch my supper in. Where's the life that late I led? Where are those? Sit down, Kate, and welcome. Soud, soud, soud. Why, when, I say? Nay, good sweet Kate, be merry. Off with my boots, you rogues, you villains, when? It was the friar of orders gray as he forth walked on his way. Out, you rogue, you pluck my foot awry. <clears throat> Take that and mend the plucking off the other. Be merry, Kate. Some water here. What ho? Where's my spaniel Troilus? Sierra, get you hence and bid my cousin Ferdinand come hither. One, Kate, that you must kiss and be acquainted with. Where are my slippers? Shall I have some water? Come, Kate, and wash and welcome heartily. You horse and villain, will you let it fall? Patience, I pray you. T'was a fault unwilling. Horse and beetle-headed, flap-eared knave. Come, Kate, sit down. I know you have a stomach. Will you give thanks, sweet Kate, or else shall I? What's this, mutton? I. Who brought it? I. Tis burnt, and so is all the meat. What dog are these? Where's that rascal cook? How durst you, villains, bring it from the dresser and serve it thus to me that love it not? 
There, take it to you, trenchers, cups and all, you heedless jolt heads and unmannered slaves. What do you grumble? I'll be with you straight. I pray you, husband, be not so disquiet. The meat was well if you were so contented. I tell thee, Kate, twas burnt and dried away, and I expressly am forbid to touch it, for engenders collar, planteth anger, and better toward that both of us did fast, since of ourselves ourselves are choleric, than feed it with such overroasted flesh. Be patient, tomorrow shall be mended, and for this night we'll fast for company. Come, I will bring thee to thy bridal chamber. Peter, didst ever see the like? He kills her in her own humor. Where is he? In her chamber, making a sermon of continency to her, and rails and swears and rates that she, poor soul, knows not which way to stand, to look, to speak, and sits as one new risen from a dream. Away, away, for he's coming hither. Thus have I politically begun my reign, and tis my hope to end successfully. My falcon now is sharp and passing empty, and till she stoop, she must not be full gourd. For then she never looks upon her lure. Another way I have to man my haggards, to make her come and know her keeper's call, that is to watch her as we watch these kites that bait and beat and will not be obedient. She eat no meat today, nor none shall eat. Last night she slept not, nor tonight she shall not. As with the meat, some undeserved fault I'll find about the making of the bed, and here I'll fling the pillow, there the bolster, this way the coverlet, another way the sheet, say, and amid this hurly, I intend that all is done in reverend care of her. And in conclusion, she shall watch all night, and if she chance to nod, I'll rail and brawl, and with the clamor keep her still awake. This is a way to kill a wife with kindness, and thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humor. He that knows better how to tame a shrew, now let him speak, tis charity to show. Whoa. Okay. Ooh, that's a lot. That's a head. He got me. That is, he this is quite a speech. I love how Shakespeare implicates the entire audience. Like, in that moment, speak now or forever hold your peace and implicate yeah. us in what's happening to both of them for the rest yeah. of the play, um, which is a really, really, really interesting thing. I just want to point out a few things. One is both of us shall fast, right? We're both going without food. It's not like just Kate's going without food. They're both fasting. They will both not be sleeping. And the making a sermon of continency to her, continency here means self-restraint, which is really important. He's not going to consummate the marriage until she is willing, right? That is not a typical attitude. So that's also really, really important to understand. It's really problematics um i think when there's there's a sense that that kate is being sort of sexually abused because literally curtis says oh yeah he's making a sermon about how we need to be really like holy and <laughs> self-restraining until until she feels that she's ready to consummate our marriage right so this is just a very unusual wedding day, obviously, for, for many, for many different reasons. And yeah, what, what were, for, for, for Coy and Brit, what were some, I'm struck by Kate's sort of, I pray you husband, like acknowledging that they are married, 
was very surprising to me somehow. And also the like trying to stand up for the servants seems like not something that she would have done before. I think it's it was interesting reading because, yeah, as, as you, you mentioned in the um, story of uh, with the horse, Kate kind of uh, going uh, the opposite side of inflicting violence. <laughs> um, and now she's uh, encouraging patience um, and and to be contented, which is it seems like we talked about in last episode, she's kind of been forced onto the other position. Um, by Petruchio uh, because he's positioned himself as a counter to her and therefore she kind of she's forced into opposition like a magnet to kind of everything that he does um, and then he's spun himself because he doesn't care or doesn't need to worry about where he is in society to force her then to be repels, re yeah, repelled against him towards a positive uh, position uh, repulsed against him to go towards being patient and fighting for patience, even though she doesn't necessarily want it. But when you hear about and think about the, if he's been doing this nonstop, I think there's, there's a certain level of exhaustion already with like, just, 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 it's okay. Like, just, we don't have to send the food back. Just eat we'll just the food. Eat, yeah. like, just, just <laughs> calm down. It's not the waiter's fault. Honey, honey. Yeah. Just can we, can we just, please? Um, I'm yeah. covered in mud. My feet are cold. Let's. Just yeah, this is it. not the time to argue over breadsticks, please. I I definitely I love that, and I love bringing back to what we talked about in our in 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 Act Three of like somehow the circling, they somehow have changed positions, right? Hit by him acting more like she did initially they've suddenly made this 180 um and he's kind of forced her into taking on rationality because he's become so irrational which i just yeah. really enjoy a lot that it's like i, I it actually that. reminds I, me of idea it's it, it actually reminds me now of um the comedic version of of the uh, macbeth couple and how mm -hmm. they kind of they they swap positions in a in a very yes. dramatic and scary way, um, but this is I, I never thought about that kind of relationship, of the I I'd always thought about how the Macbeth couple she starts in this position and then ends up actually uh, in the exact opposite position and kills herself over it because of the regret and he kind of questions the action and then by the end is totally. Uh, remorseless uh, and doesn't doesn't question it at all. This is like the comedic version of that inversion. Yes, absolutely. And I think important to have like really dynamic in the in the sort of timeline of dynamic couples in Shakespeare. I think yeah, planting the seeds of where powerful couples in Shakespeare sort of switch positions and and roles is is really important to note that this is one of those. Speaking of like, yeah. I guess, power dynamics and you mentioning, I didn't see that initially in the text about, you know, that he's not consummating the marriage and thinking back to what, you know, marriage represented in these days and what it's like to be a woman and everything. It's almost like, I, I think that would be a really hard blow, even if she didn't want to have sex with him, just this idea of like, am I not a woman? Am I not desired? Mm -hmm. Is this like, am I not able to fulfill my role? And 
I don't know, in, in some ways she now, how would I write this down? I had a really good thought and, and it escaped me. Before she had like, I guess, agency with her emotions. She could react however she wanted and she could still get fed and stuff like that. And like now he's almost in some ways given her true agency, which is like, you know, well, we're going to play this. However, your reactions are going to be the consequence. Like you'll have consequences to your reactions. If you want to go to bed together and be cordial, then we can do that. Otherwise, if we want to be in this torrent, then we can be in this torrent too. Yeah. Um, oh, and that's just really fascinating to me because, you know, all this stuff that she was railing against at the beginning, I feel like she actually is now has access to you know yeah easier for who she is and she doesn't have to get married to you know some old bumbling whatever like i don't know i don't know where i was going I, with that i I'm love like a, that i'm at the peak of a thought but brit i think that's wonderful because what he's really doing is provoking both agency and choice and responsibility right it's like all three of those things that your actions and your behavior has consequences it will determine what our how our relationship is and how our household is run especially and because also like that that to follow through you know that that you need to commit commit to the bit commit to the marriage commit to the however we're going to be in this and if he moment. if he did have a nice household and it wasn't like you said a big huge mess and these people usually because i don't remember what servant it is but he's like well you know michael had to run to the store and then he woke up this morning and his laundry wasn't done. like it's all like reasonable things you know and kate now is finally seeing like you know I, developing empathy and all that and i'm just yeah. like okay well if your truth really is one of these men who's like I'm a little bit more grounded and I've had so much money and, you know, I'm a smart man. So life's been kind of easy for me and I can have, you know, he just seems like he's more of, um, I don't know, emotionally intelligent or something maybe. I don't know. Or I could just be way overthinking this and trying to, you know, make a play that's problematic into something that's very. I really like the mirroring that Ari was talking about last week with um, the idea of, of like Petruchio mirroring, mirroring Kate's behavior to her so that she sees it. Um, there was, yeah. A problematic stand-up comedian who had a point about bullying online, uh, whose name we shall leave unnamed. I also but, find it. Uh, he was sorry. He was just saying that, like with with modern online bullying, like you don't the kids don't see the reaction of their bullying immediately, mm -hmm. and so you don't learn compassion because when you bully someone and you when you see they get hurt, you're like, oh, I hurt that person. And when you can bully them and and there's this disconnect, it's easy to keep them inhuman, uh, mm -hmm. and. For someone like Kate, uh, a woman in that position, I could very easily see that she can walk around and act in a way that no one's allowed to engage with her re in a, an honest way. So she doesn't see the, the impacts of how mm -hmm. she behaves. But being kind of slightly on the outside next to Petruchio and having him mimic that behavior, and she sees the chaos that it causes. And she's also in the, like she's actually affected by that chaos too. Um, but she also, yeah, forced to see how it affects other people. So kind of to jumpstart that compassion, I think that's a really interesting way to look at. Yeah. It's like, and it's, kind of, I feel like it's kind of important too. Cause I saw, I felt like the text, I thought it was going to be one scene that was just like, and he comes in volt, like, you know, blazing, but there's a lot of twists and turns. It's him being kind of angry and then turning to Kate and being somewhat kind of being like, I'm doing this for you, which makes her have even more responsibility. It's like just pushing her more towards having empathy and everything else. Cause she's like, well, wait a second. If, if me being frustrated that the bed's not turned at night is going to create this much havoc, then I guess things aren't, I don't need to, why am I creating all of this drama in my life? You know? Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 th I think that's great. And I think, um, 
I think there's a bit Patricio kind of does that to us, the audience with those last lines in his speech of like, if we're like, whoa, this is like really problematic. You know, if that's our reaction, he's implicated us by us not standing up and doing something right. So there's, there's an interesting psychological trick that's being played on us. Yeah, yeah. Will, go ahead. So I have a theory that Brittany just uh, sparked, which is that <laughs> it, it seems to me, because I was thinking about that passage when, when Petruchio first comes in and Groomy, and he's like, why didn't you guys meet me? And Grumio comes up with these excuses about how this or that was wrong with this or that servant and whatever. And we, it seems to me that that's not true, right? He's making this up. That's not what happened. It's not like he tried to get them all together, but there was something wrong with this guy's hat and there was something, right? That's not what yeah. happened. What happened was he wasted all the time that he was supposed to spend getting them to meet him, screwing around with Curtis and talking about how cold it is, right? And so then it strikes oh. me what probably happened is that Petruchio, that Grumio is actually in on this. Yeah. He told Grumio, go ahead, waste a bunch of time, and then I'm going to get there and yell at you for not coming to meet me. And Grumio's in on that. And that's actually why he's stalling with Curtis in the whole scene where he's just like saying weird shit and like talking about how cold it is instead of getting ready. I just had pictured Grubio as that sad dog, like, yes, Grubio, <laughs> <laughs> go do that. <laughs> but Petruchio's probably told him, well, I'm going to come in and I'm going to confront you, and you're going to come up with all these excuses about why you couldn't meet me, so that I'll, you know, but it's all part of this act to, like, very good ideas. Yes. <laughs> the other thing is, I think also that the that the journey through the through the muck or whatever with the horses was clearly intentional, right? Oh that yeah, absolutely. Took, I took them along through the swamp and whatever because, and this kind of goes back to like what you were saying with the mirroring technique. Ever since you were talking about this, are with the uh, like misbehaving kids or whatever kids who violent children. I've been thinking about this play in the context of being a teacher for three years, and I taught middle school for three years, and like a lot of the the like techniques of dealing with like spoiled bratty children is putting them in like physically challenging situations like all these sorts of you know uh rehab programs for troubled teens and whatever they're always like camping and you know canoeing and all this kind of stuff because those types of like very challenging physical experiences have a way of like snapping entitled bratty kids out of it, you know, and making <laughs> responsibility for themselves and have empathy for the other people who are with, like all this kind of stuff. And I think that's a lot of what he's doing here is like with the, the kind of physical hardship of the journey. And then we're not going to eat and we're not going to sleep. It's like just putting her through this kind of ordeal to, to, uh, make her less entitled i guess and and just to to expand that that thought or build on that thought a little bit too will i think what is also important about those sort of like retreats for behavioral adjustment or is it really is also about building teamwork right and getting a sense that like it isn't all about you how can you be a productive member of a team and I, I, I feel like there's very much this is like, how can you be a productive? Like, I, I love the idea that they come in, the house is utterly spotless. Everyone is like completely well turned out, you know, well dressed. Everyone looks like comfortable and warm and whatever. The, ha the meat is delicious. 
And that by the end of this scene, this beautiful, like clean, tidy, ordered world has been destroyed by Petruchio's chaos, right? And so there's there's like, if we see the consequences of this, because literally it's like he's throwing the food at, and plates and cups at the servants. Everyone's getting covered in food. The place is trashed by the end of this scene. And as we saw, you know, at the beginning of act two, like Kate binding her sister's hands, dragging her around the house, smashing a servant with, with a loot, you know, like all of this was, was creating utter chaos in the household. So this idea that now, and, and of course, when you're a kid, you don't have kind of a sense of ownership over your space, you know, like your parents will be like, you need to clean your room. And you're like, no, I don't want to. But like, there is something when it is your space, you have to deal with the mess, right? Like she is now the mistress of the house and she now has to deal with this mess um, and make sure that like, if they were to have guests, right? The cousin coming or whatever that, that Petruchio talks about, like she needs to have an ordered cleanly house as part of her duty as a householder, right? So that this is another way of seeing that in order to be a productive team, you have to work together and you need to make compromises, right? And all of that fun stuff. Yeah, please, Coy, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I wonder if you could, if you were to kind of do like a modern version of this and instead of it being like a marriage, having it be like a really, so a really rich kid um, <laughs> as Catherine and just, just being like college roommates, with with someone else who's Petruchio. So you remove the kind of sexual stuff and just having to be like, okay, like I'll, you want to be a jerk roommate? Like I'll be the jerk roommate. And like, yeah. oh no, wait. Like, but kind of playing that same thing because I think what you were just describing is a lot about like class, social class status, uh, yeah. narcissism. Yeah, lack of compassion, that sort of stuff, which you can, which you can, you can take the gender dynamics out of that if that's the joke i think absolutely i mean i'm just thinking of um i used to take care of a a rather wealthy child and i remember hearing stories about when he was younger he was used to having like five people around the house to clean up to do the cooking to do everything and someone had cleaned his room and arranged all of his, you know, like stuffed animals. And as soon as he got in the room, he just trashed it. Like he threw everything around. He threw the, you know, the teddy bears everywhere. And then he was like, it's messy in here, clean it up. And it was like this strange testing of the power that he had over these adults, right? Because all of these people working for the family are adults. And this, um, and it also, you know, it, it kind of worried me because almost all of the people working for them were female right so that they're also is developing from a very early age a sense of this power dynamic of like i can tell women what to do with absolutely no no regard for their feelings because like they work for me you know as like a five-year-old you know that is that's that's that can get really really complicated um i think for people later in life um, to be but, fair, my cat does yeah. the same thing with me. Yeah. It really, you know, he tries, like... he pushes every boundary and tries to get me to capitulate at every turn. Are these your shoes? I'm going to pee in them. You know, it's yeah. like, it's kind of like, it's, it's. Does this meowing in five in the morning get me what I want? Oh, it does? Oh, Let it does. me keep doing okay, it. Okay, I'll keep doing it. Or like, yeah, my, one of my cats who they do not sleep in this room anymore. She used to, I remember she would, 
at five in the morning, she would come with her claw and she would start scratching my forehead. <laughs> and I would just be like, oh, you know, and, and I would always like throw her off the bed or whatever. And then she would just come back and just start scratching my forehead. So then I would like put the pillow over my face and be like, I'm not going to reward you for this behavior. This is ridiculous, but it's really hard, right? It's really hard when like someone is dependent on the other person for, to get like their food or whatever. It's, yeah. And what you're describing weird. with this kid yeah. is the same thing, right? The kid is, he's like, he has no agency over his own life Yeah, or right. Not. So, so how can I get it's what It's mammalian, want? right? It's, yeah. it's, we're just trying to, um, when it becomes human though, we have our human brains that add so many layers and then we have different capacity and power to impact other humans that animals don't have. Yeah, go ahead, Grayson. No, I, I thought it was interesting. If you are a first time uh, Legoer watching this, I mean, your first reaction is this is, this is sadism, borderline sadism. And yet, and yet Shakespeare, we have the luxury of seeing the text and thinking about it. He goes out of his way to explain exactly why this is going on. So, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and I think I, I would actually love uh, Brit to go through this, this last speech, um, politically begun my reign, right? You're, oh. you're, you're, you're becoming the ruler of the household. But then all of this, speaking of animals, right? And training animals, all of this is couched in the language of hawking, right? Which was a very, very popular pastime of training these birds of prey, essentially, that are perfectly capable in the natural world of learning how to hunt for themselves. Very good right? point, Ari. Very good like, point. <laughs> perfectly capable um, in the wild of, of being some of the most uh, accomplished hunters on the planet. But um, th this whole part about, he talks about the, the, the haggard here would be a hawk that would be capable of hunting for itself and that's what he's saying kate should be capable right but somehow she isn't so this is all part of part of this kind of training i i wonder if the if the play were different if it was called the taming of the hawk you know like instead of the shrew just a thought just a thought i think um, it's interesting too if because you said that he you know um he's going without sleep and without food himself i think that's so crucial that he's not like sitting across from her eating or like going yes. and getting his rest and everything that like you said it's sort of a partnership and you know what you do like it's it's yeah teaching empathy through showing the consequences of actions that you know you are not just your own little vessel here that everything that you do and yeah especially that you're a lady of the house and stuff like you have responsibilities and that was actually one thing I will say that I really enjoyed about the um, Zeffirelli version with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor is once like Kate had been there for a few days, like she didn't have any new clothes. She like took a towel, she tied it around her hair and she started helping to clean the house. And it was like, wow, she's like ordering the house. She's becoming a member of the household. And I, I actually really did like that sort of little film montage that they did because to me this was like an indication of like oh wow she's learning how to become an integrated and not disruptive member of a household for the first time in her life well also with that, her violet that's eyes exactly, that's exactly the same as like when you take kids on camping trips is that yeah. like the the adult goes through everything with them right like i i would do these with my kids and they'd be like whining it's hot it's cold there's mosquitoes i'm tired whatever and, and, you know, the adults are there going, yeah, me too. And we can still smile and like get on with it. And that like, they're showing the example of like, 
just because something is not ideal doesn't mean you have to throw a fit, right? And yeah. so Petruchio going through all that with her, you know, he's showing her, yeah, you haven't slept in two nights, neither have I, and I'm still happy. Like, you know, I mean, he's, he's like giving her the benchmark of what, what sh she should be able to do. I want to yeah. jump on that, Will, because there's something really, um, I think, interesting in, in that, using that example as the camping for this kind of, um, my mother Sorry, once I said that. Sorry, having a sale, by the way. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I once heard a, my mother had a good example of, she said, you know, some people go camping and they love it. And some people go hiking and it's just like walking on a treadmill, getting slapped with branches in a room <laughs> that's filled with mosquitoes. So it really like the physical act, the physical, you know, it, that's that's what's happening to your body. So it's really, well, what's the difference? And what's interesting, you're just talking about that camping is like going through that with the kids. That's something that you're both going through. You've kind of instigated it because you're leading the group. But is there a moral difference if you are the one who creates the mosquitoes? If you are the one who creates the all of those conditions that the weather has has created if you're the one that actually puts those into effect because that's what petruchio is doing right he's yeah. creating the condition and therefore now because he's in control of it somehow um there's an ethical qu question for the audience or for yes. us reading it but if it's just going into the woods and and dealing with the nature which no one's no one's like there's a weird thing where all of a sudden we as humans start to say well now it's someone's fault but the the actual experience and the outcome can be the same regardless of whether but it's intentional it's or not it's like he's doing a combination of like camping therapy and mirror therapy right that he's yeah. simultaneously like making it hard for her because that's good for her her entitlement and whatever and he's also mirroring her own behavior to her right because like if i i think if he were to just take her into a difficult situation it wouldn't have the same effect as him demonstrating how the, she reacts to the difficult situation that she has been doing yeah yeah, mm -hmm. no, I do think that's important, but I also definitely also want to bring up that I think it is very easy and understandable to interpret this as as a sadistic uh, encounter, and I can understand fully why why people would would get that reaction from this. And I think you know, were were we to stage this, I would try and do a lot to indicate. To, to draw attention to the fact that Petruchio is also not eating and not sleeping. And, um, you know, that, 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 that is, to me is really important that he is undergoing the same trial that she is. Question about the final speech, if Petruchio really hasn't gone with, cause it just, now that I'm thinking about it, that seems like such well thought out, or is he like coming in and he's like, I'm exhausted, but much like a hawker, you know, like, is he wiping his brow? Is he like at that point? Cause I, when I was reading it, I thought it was so concise and clear what he was saying yeah. that it felt a little bit more, it's just interesting. I actually kind of love that Brit. I love the idea of him. Like here I am. Okay. I said no coffee for two days. You know, like that kind of feeling <laughs> of like, I'm so beat down right now and all I need is a cup of coffee. Right, or like he's like shoveling manure, you know, and he's yeah. like, look, if anyone has a better idea of how to move this, you let me know. But meanwhile, I'm just going to be deep in it, you know? That's very much the way um, 
both our, our Patricios are playing it. There's a oh, there's a weariness and almost an imploring to the audience. Have you got a better way to do this? Because yeah. I'm this all is really ears. hard. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important, right? This is not easy. What he's doing. If it, if this feels easy, I think it is, it is sadism, right? It yeah, it gets to the BDSM. I this absolutely is, agree. If this is really exhausting for both of them, if he is like, yeah, comes out like wiping his brow and like like grabbing his stomach and like cleaning up the mess that he made, you know, I think there's, we get a different impression. And it also seems this. like yeah. somewhat self, self-sacrifice. And he's like, I'm willing to do something that's hard or that's something that's not going to make me comfortable yeah. for a little bit. If it's better for us as a whole and for you as, you know, my wife and all that kind of stuff, it just gives mm -hmm. him a little bit more of a human, you get, yeah. you have, yeah. Sympathy, empathy. I don't know what you understand where he's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Coy, go ahead. Yeah, Britt, you actually made me think about like, I mean, this is a very standard acting question, but what do you have to lose for failing and what do you have to gain? Um, like what's what's the risk for Petruchio of of being married to Kate and her remaining a shrew for the rest of her life? Um, how would that impact his life? And it how seems would that like impact it, it'll be much like this scene here. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's what he's trying to point out that, yeah, we can make it troublesome and like fight against everything, but look, I got a clean house and bed sheets. So maybe we just like, yeah, I mean, I, like if, if we take, if we take a kind of parallel example of saying like someone who has a destructive addiction to a substance, and then you, you treat them in this way that like in the moment they are being tortured but they're, they're having to struggle with dealing with their addiction and getting through and changing their behavior, the behavior that continues to destroy their own lives. Um, mm -hmm. What is an acceptable treatment uh, to change that behavior? Um, and you can still say that the treatment is unacceptable, but if the behavior changes- Maybe he changes, would justify it by saying, well, I'm going through the same exact thing, so I'm not torturing her. You know what I mean? Like it's something that I'm willing to go through myself, you know? Well, and also, I don't think I think we're so far away, hundreds of years away, and I don't, I don't, I can't understand. We don't have a dramaturg or to understand like what happens if this marriage, like if he gets married to this shrew and she just stays a shrew, like but what is I, that? What's I that going to do to his stakes to his wealth, can be even everything? more romantic than that? Like maybe he, I think he was serious in those earlier scenes where he was like, "That one's mine." Like she's smart, she's witty, she's strong, she's capable. Like I think the stakes might be more emotional, not just like is my life going to be kind of troublesome, yeah. but more like I want this woman and the potential for what I see she could be, you know, she's well, I mean, man. emotions can be part of that evaluation, right? Yeah, emotions yeah. can be part of that. Like if I, how will I feel if she stays this way and I want her to be, but she, she'll, I don't know. Like, there's just, there's a lot of things that like, like there's, there's a future that these characters will live that the change in her behavior is about, the rest of her life. It's not about, is it like, I think it's easy to just look at the, 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 the action of changing her behavior and these things and say, that's exactly what it's all about that moment because that's the play. But it's like, no, no, there's, there's all the years and decades of their life after this play ends that that's the objective for Petruchio. So understanding the objective, I think, is something that it's kind of implied in the script. They just they don't even talk about it, but it's there or... is a there is an indication at the end that I think is really important, which is when Kate comes in. Right. She's the only wife that comes in when Petruchio asks her to come in. And Hortensio says, 
I wonder what it bodes. And Petruchio says, Mary, peace it bodes and love and quiet life and awful rule and right supremacy. And to be short, what not that's sweet and happy, right? He is, to me, that's like my end goal is a quiet, happy marriage. They lived happily ever after. He's like setting it up. Yeah, it's like a weird, it's a weird happily ever after in a, in a strange way. Yeah, Carol and then Grayson. And then we should probably get to our second seed too. <laughs> yeah, what I liked about the uh, Kiss Me Petruchio documentary is it really did show you those moments where, and it, it was subtextual, you know, it, you know, you, you watch them do it and then you thought, yeah, you know, actually that is there in the text that that as the arc of the taming progressed um there are moments of connection between them where she sees in him something she really likes and he sees in her something he really likes and by the end they're they're a team you know they're almost like what vonnegut called um a dupras a nation of two that, that they had created their own reality and they were happy within it. Yeah, absolutely. That they, they create their own eccentric, peaceful marriage. Um, yeah, Grayson, go ahead. So what it reminds me of, <clears throat> and this may be way off base, like, you know, I worked 33 years as a bank regulator. Often you get in a group of trainees and the most, uh, the strongest one you would really lean on because you know they could coast and you knew you could get more out of that person so it's not totally uh, foreign to me that idea of putting the needle in uh, someone that you are think is important yeah absolutely and and see their potential right and see their right, right, their right. their potential to be a really productive member of a team um yeah will i just want to you know going back to this idea of like is it ethical to do what he's doing, even if it's for a good cause or whatever, you know, and, and we as a modern audience looking at this and kind of feeling like icky about it or that it's quote problematic or something. And I just, you know, our ideas have changed so much in terms of gender and, and our perception of what's okay with gender relations and so forth. But I would say that, you know, this idea of like training your spouse is actually, there's a there's a TEDx talk by this woman, which I believe is called How to Train Your Boyfriend. And there, you see this in romantic comedies all the time of like women training men to be more acceptable partners or Human? better partners. No, I'm kidding. You know, <laughs> that's our idea about it now, right? Our, our sort of cultural paradigm now is men are disgusting, you know, oppressive minds and women have to train them to make them acceptable right and i think that is not how it's always been and and you know in shakespeare's day it was maybe something else but but the idea that like i think if this was you know the the taming of the husband or whatever nobody would have a problem with it uh the, the fact I've... that like this this kind of flipping of our perception of what's okay with gender i think gives it a different shade but you bring up something interesting and I think I think it just goes down to power balances between gender and just this fight between two people in a relationship. And I think I think Meryl Streep mentions it in that um, Kiss Me Petruchio. But we um, we just it's always like who who. Oh, shoot. I'm not able to find my words. But 
there's something really romantic about this idea of stripping gender and power away and just being like, these are two people who in order to love each other really have to let go. And it's interesting, Will, because I'm like, what is that? Why is it that we're not connecting with this text? We read so much on top of it. And I think it is because there's always seen this battle, like when, it, especially when it comes to romantic relationships of you have to act this certain way in order to somewhat secretly have power over the other. It's, you know what I mean? Like it's never truly this idea of like, I'm looking at you and I just love you and, you have that much, you know, control over me because of my emotions and how much I care about you and everything. It's like, it's just this level of like vulnerability. Um, and so I think because of that, yeah, we probably haven't looked at this play as in-depthly for what it could possibly be if we, if we just stripped the gender implications away and didn't look at it with such a heavy lens of that and saw it as more of, you know, the stereotypical Shakespeare. It's just a human story at the end of the day, you know? Yeah, that's really important. And actually, that's that's part of the reason that I, I did want to switch the genders just to see like what that would give us. And if that would sort of just by making that casting decision, if that would sort of take away hmm. some of the over 50 pound baggage that this a lot of preconceived notions. Yeah. It would be cool to do like a to do with with a same gender couple as well, just to absolutely you know, to absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, and it initially was right. Right. It mm -hmm. was two men. I think in, for me, from a from a modern perspective, from a contemporary perspective, my issue comes down to the to the consent and buy-in of both parties. Mm. Um, I think there's yeah. a lot that you can do with a partner to encourage each other towards or away from behaviors. You know, it's it's possible to make deals with your partner of like, uh, I'm doing one right now <laughs> with mine about like exercising more. Like we're both like, we're like, you do this and I'll do this. And like, let's negotiate to like encourage each other to like be accountable and do things that we want to be doing, but struggle to force ourselves to do. But if you're doing it without buy-in and consent i mean that's really the strip the genders all you want you still have that core issue i think yeah well and that's like the thing of uh of that it's reciprocal right and i think that's where we sometimes can get tripped up because it's like what is actually petruchio reciprocating here or is he just manipulating the situation in order to change her behavior is his behavior changing in any way is he making any compromises that to me is like where we get a little bit tripped up because it's like one thing if yeah i love the, the exercise example but it's like one thing if one part one person in that partnership is like you need to exercise more and the other person's like okay you know and it's like wait but like what <laughs> are you gonna stop smoking no that's right. not on the table you know what I mean like if it's just like one person being like oh yeah I'm gonna lose weight you know and the other person's like yeah you have to like that is not I feel like it has to be in, in any way right you know <laughs> <laughs> Well, and we yeah, don't even know hard. that Kate wanted to change, right? I think like, yeah. that's just something on to on top, the consent part. Like, yeah. like he's doing all this stuff and it's like, but did she want to or agree to this outcome? It would be one thing if he's just like, I'll promise that I can make you this new person in five weeks. Just just trust me. And she's like, I'm in, you know, yeah. but it was her it was her father who said she's in, you know, yeah. Kate never <laughs> said, sign me up. But I, I get yeah, you just have to keep yeah. it in the context of the time, you know, like it is it is you're absolutely right. If, if you're just looking at it as, at a pure without the cultural and societal and not mm -hmm. all that mm -hmm. context. Yeah, absolutely. It's at the end of the day, this woman is still having to be bound by the constraints of where she lives and when she lives, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and yes, absolutely. You know what, I, I think that's what one of the things that, that is attractive to Kate about Petruchio is from the from the first, he's eccentric. Yeah. He, 
He's yeah. he's not um, Hortensio. He's not Gremio. He's a very different kind of suitor, and someone who's as clever with words as she is. And this just builds throughout the play. This this sense of um, if she is constrained by Baptista's expectations, society's expectations, Petruchio's a way out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you also have to remember, Coy, that it's like, no, she never says that she buys in in the play, but you've got to think about, like, what's the alternative to some degree for her? Like, is she just going to stay living in her father's house and being mad all the time? Like, Petruchio does make her life way better. And yes, it's, you know, it's uh, a very, like, it's an ordeal to get her there. But And he seems to give her agency like there was some line that he had earlier where she was like everybody go into supper and he was like oh absolutely those are your people you are allowed to order them around but you and i we're going somewhere else you know like he does seem to give her as much of agency and freedom as you possibly can have at this day and age you know i also just want to remind us that she was actually genuinely upset to the point of bursting into tears when she thought that petruchio wasn't coming to their marriage yeah. not that right. she was marrying petruchio right but that he wasn't going to show up so there isn't there is an interesting dynamic there to be investigated um i really like what carol was saying about how like we see the other forms of wooing of the time and how um the diff like they're all slightly different and they're all dehumanizing uh and uh kate or bianca and the fact that yeah petruchio comes in he's willing to woo in a way that ignores social norms he's willing to woo in a way that prioritizes kate uh you know, judge that prioritization how you will um, in a way that like keeps her as a human. You know, we can judge his his lines and ethical boundaries, but he does uh, he does have a focus on her and he does have a, a freedom from the boundaries of the society uh, as presented in the play. We don't have to do dramaturgy to to see how other people do similar uh, things. Yeah, and I think I think it's super important that like she at least you play it this way that she wants she does want to marry him because yeah like Ari's saying she's crying because he's not going to show up i think i mean like what's the alternative who's she gonna marry gremio like this guy is clearly the best person she's ever seen and i think to some degree she like doesn't know how to handle that at the beginning of the play and you know it's like this guy's crazy because she doesn't know like she's never seen anybody like this and she doesn't know how to react to it and whatever but i think it's pretty clear that by the time the first courting scene is over she's like yep if anyone's gonna marry me it's that guy i also think it's important just for me reading petruchio i think he has to be emotionally invested and want to be married to her too otherwise a lot of this just falls apart yes i totally agree i think that is the key that he is emotionally invested in this marriage being successful and not just about this exchange not just i come to wive at wealthily in padua but I I want a legacy. I want to build a family with this person. Yeah, absolutely, Koi. And then we should really get to our yeah. This is this is this is something I I made a note of before we move on from this scene. It's a small thing, but the fact that uh, Petruchio has a dog named Troilus is 
Amazing. And that this was written, I, I looked it up while we were talking, it was written like five or 10 years before Troilus and Cressida was written. So this is just this, I love it. It's like he's already thinking about these characters and this stuff is, uh, th that was just a great little. I love, well, and of course, Troilus is like the most devoted lover, right? Even so there, there's something like. Very cute. A dog named Troilus is like a lovely dog name. I think yeah, it's, it's a really we should have more. Name. We need more loyal Troilusses. Um, let us move on to Act 4, Scene 2, where we're going to catch up with Bianca and Lucentio, who seem to be very much in love now. Um, and But this is, again, a slightly different kind of... This, to me, reads very much like courtly love, their interaction somehow. I don't know why, but maybe, maybe you guys can illuminate it for me. Um, Carol, I was wondering if you could read Lucentio for us because Allie is is not um, oh, unfortunately. Thank you so much. So let's go through to when the pedant enters. Okay. Oh shoot! I just realized we also don't have Tronio. You want me to read it? Yes, please. That would be lovely. Thank you. Is it possible, friend Legio, that Mistress Bianca doth fancy any other but Lucentio? I tell you, sir, she bears me fair in hand. Sir, to satisfy you in what I have said, stand by and mark the manner of his teaching. Now, mistress, profit you in what you read? What master read you first resolve me that? I read that I profess the art to love. And may you prove, sir, master of your art. While you, sweet dear, prove mistress of my heart. Quick proceeders, Mary, now tell me, I pray, you that durst swear that your mistress Bianca loved none in the world so well as Lucencio. Oh, despiteful love, unconstant womankind, I tell thee, Licio, this is wonderful. Mistake no more. I am not Licio, nor a musician, as I seem to be, but one that scorned to live in this disguise for such a one as leaves a gentleman and makes a god of such a cullion, know, sir, that I am called Hortensio. Signor Hortensio, I have often heard of your entire affection to Bianca, and since mine eyes are witness to her lightness, I will tell you, if you be so contented, forswear Bianca and her love forever. See how they kiss in court? Signor Lucencio, here is my hand, and here I firmly vow never to woo her more, but do forswear her as one unworthy all the former favors that I've fondly flattered her withal. And here I take the unfeigned oath, never to marry with her, though she would entreat. Fie on her, see how beastly she doth court him. Would all the world that he had quite forsworn... If for me, that I may surely keep mine oath, I will be married to a wealthy widow, ere three days pass, which hath as long loved me as I have loved this proud, disdainful haggard. And so farewell, Signor Lucentio. Kindness in woman, not their beauteous looks, shall win my love. And so I take my leave in resolution as I swore before. Actually, let's pause right here, because I just want to give uh, Hortensio a little bit of time here. I do want to flag that... Petruchio talked about the haggard and literally the last at the very end of the scene about like, oh, it's going to be difficult to tame the haggard, which is right, like the sort of independent hawk. 
And Hortensio's like, hell no, way too difficult. I'm out. <laughs> and calls Bianca the same thing. Yeah, Hortensio, thoughts. Zoe, tell me your thoughts about like this really quick about face that, that Hortensio makes here. I mean, at the end of his scene in act three, we already see him starting to realize maybe this is a game he can't win. Um, and so when Tranio, disguised still as Lucentio, starts talking him out of it, he's like, okay, someone else is seeing it too. I guess I, I have another option now in the widow. I guess that's, it's going to be the easier path. I'll take it. And she's wealthy, so... <laughs> It's so amazing to me that Hortensia was like, has been so devoted to Bianca. And then at like the first sign of an obstacle is like, screw this. I'm, I'm, I want the wealthy widow. <laughs> yeah, no, he's easiest path, least resistance. And that's what makes him happy. Yeah. I wish we could see the yeah. widow. I wish we could just see what that choice really is. And again, it's about money, right? It's not just a widow. It's a wealthy widow. He comes to wive it wealthily in Padua as well. Here you really see the conventions, just... right? The the the, the more conventional oh, yeah. courtship relationships, and you can see why. I mean, if I was Kate, I, I my head would be exploding too. I don't want this. The hypocrisy of the of the courting and the wooing and the yeah, absolutely. The fact they're all disguised, the, the, the... <laughs> and they're all in disguise. I love the idea that like. Hortensio has like a huge like Pinocchio nose or something and it's like it's me <laughs> you know like I just think that's so funny um <laughs> that that there would be a a very extreme disguise and like Tranio can feign um you know just being like shocked and confused and and that wonderful you know meaning full of wonder this is wonderful and he gets to sort of play the double meaning of like i'm so glad that bianca is so into my master but also like pretending to be like i am terribly shocked well just the whole um, so there, there's a, the whole yeah. fact he's also in disguise and he's like oh you were also in disguise but like hortensio doesn't realize tranio's not lucentio like there's that whole thing like he reveals himself but he doesn't realize the person he's talking to is also technically in disguise and not who he thinks he is um that whole aspect could be fun to play with too oh absolutely well and the fact that lucentio is in disguise as cambio right in this thing so it's like it, there are four people on stage three of them are in disguise and hortensio thinks he's the only person in disguise and again i just go back to this i love the idea that like Tranio's clothes like just don't fit because they were made for Lucentio you know so that like the idea that like Tranio's hat is like constantly falling into his face and he's always like pushing it up and like I'm so and the sleeves are like huge and he just looks like a small child and in like big clothing or the opposite of that that everything's like too tight you know I, I just really I, I love that idea. So question do you think it's part of their plan maybe this is giving them too much credit, but the, when they decide to switch and have, uh, you know, Lucentio pretend to be a servant and Trani pretend to be the noble, do you think that they had this outcome in mind? Because the only reason Hortensio is really disgusted with Bianca and going to give up on her is 
because he's so horrified that she seems to be interested in a lower class person, not knowing that yeah. it's actually an upper class person. Like if, if they had been in their proper roles and this was another nobleman, he probably wouldn't go, ah, screw her. She's, you know, she's just a whore because she's going out with a teacher now. Right. <laughs> Which basically is what he's saying. He would, he would, he would see the other, he would see, um, Lucentio in disguise as more similar or Lucentio as more of like a gremio, another competitor. Yeah. Right. Their game. Yeah. And he probably wouldn't give up. So there, there it is. I, right. I do think that is giving Lucentio and Tronio a little bit too much credit that like, Oh yeah, ultimately this is what I think this is just a result, but I, I, I do love the, I do love the idea that they're, you know, their like little secret flirting has just become so over the top that everyone is like talking about this now, except, you know, the clueless dad who just has no idea. Um, but I, I do, I do think it's also important. Like Lucentio is, is just like having the time of his life. Right. He's just like, Oh my God, she loves me. I love her. This is great. It's very sort of storybook, but interesting how all of the language about Bianca so far. And um, unfortunately Morgan's Wi-Fi cut out. He just texted me. He's like, I'm trying to get back on. Um, but Bianca is really interesting uh, here to me that she is, she is very forward and she's also like making her choice very clear. Um, and it's interesting, Hortensio brings in language about, about her, the grown hawk, right? Before she had been this innocent young thing. And now she is like an independent woman, very similar to her sister. So I just wanted to point out that it's really interesting that they're both being described in this way of like very strong, strong-willed women um which bianca had been described as very submissive and all of the other like very sweet and submissive and oh isn't she just perfect and then it's like oh my god she has an opinion oh my god i hate her you know so it, it is definitely interesting to see how quickly the language can change um but yeah it does seem to be a lot of sort of class hatred right this idea that she's so into this tutor that's the most offensive thing not that he not that she's not into him right but that the person that she seems to be focused on is this lower class tutor well and just the fact that she's she's picked someone at this point because up until now she never picked someone so it was kind of up in the air it could be anyone felt like a fair fight but now that yeah. she does have her eyes set on someone it's no longer it's a new game it's different absolutely absolutely and again the loving hortensio is like i'm out <laughs> shit got hard i'm done um love it so hortensio slash lydio or lichio uh disappears and now tranio can sort of become Tranio can sort of, again, Tranio has all these really interesting reversions of status, right? So many times when he's like in the middle of the scene and then he'll switch and yay, Morgan's back. Um, and he will just, uh, he becomes Tranio again. And then he has somebody else comes in and he has to switch back to being Lucentio and being high status. So it's really fun, I think, for the, for the actor playing Tranio to sort of get to have these very quick status negotiations and switches. Um, within the scene. Uh, Morgan, I was just wondering if you had any, any thoughts on, on Bianca and her sort of 
clear choice uh, at the beginning of the scene. Clear preference, as it were. Uh, Let's see. I mean, I just keep thinking back to when I first saw the production and just, and it was my youth theater was doing it and I just saw some of my friends just like freaking making out in the scene and, and like that was all, all I could think of in that moment <laughs> I was I so like thinking about the what I know about the play now it's interesting that she she's obviously given way to um Lucentio and has has obviously fallen for him rather than everyone else and um it's we, we've seen her finally like connecting with someone when like when she was tied up with with Kate she was like I haven't met anyone that I even like at all yeah so suddenly this random guy comes in to be her tutor and and they start hitting it off I I really like the idea that came up last time of not necessarily casting Lucentio as like this super hunky young guy but that actually he's kind of like a really nerdy little scholar I I just I don't know why but I really really love I really love that idea and that like like Hortensio is actually quite dashing you know I just I I love the idea of playing with sort of received notions about about characters because love is complicated you know it's not it's and also it's, I feel like this yeah. is um because she's not in she's I mean she's in on the game of of Lucentio and Tranio but she's still made the decision herself like she's she's yeah. has yeah some agency here about who she falls in love with absolutely regardless of the game that baptista and everyone else has been playing around her yeah so she's made this decision on her own and regardless of the fact that lucentio is obviously trying to be with her this whole time and so obviously she's finally given in to him and been like okay i trust you now i'm i'm into you now yeah and we've we've seen i mean she unfortunately bianca does not get a lot of lines but we have seen a change right from the last time that we saw her with with lucentio she was like don't presume don't despair i'm still getting to know you you know and that is really that was really great so now we i think we're meant to believe that they have fallen in love um and that this is a process that that has taken some time um Great. So I want to bring in, because I love it that now Trania Lucentio and uh, Bianca are sort of this, like, this team of these, like, three musketeers who are like, we're going to make this marriage happen. And then in will come Biondello, our sort of fourth musketeer, as it were. Koi, I was wondering if you could read Biondello for us. Great. So let's have, so Hortensio has just left. And now we have Tranio, Bianca, and Lucentio together. And we'll just, let's go to the end of the scene just to get the flow of this whole subplot. Mistress Bianca, bless you with such grace as longeth to a lover's blessed case. Nay, I have ta'en you napping, gentle love, and have forsworn you with Hortensio. Tranio, you jest, but have you both forsworn me? Mistress, we have. Then we are rid of Litio. If eighth, he'll have a lusty widow now that shall be wooed and wedded in a day. God give him joy. Ay, and he'll tame her. He says so, Tranio. Faith, he has gone unto the taming school. The taming school? What, is there such a place? Ay, mistress, and Petruchio is the master that teacheth tricks eleven and twenty long to tame a shrew and charm her chattering tongue. Oh, master. Master, I have watched so long that I am dog-weary, but at last... I spied an ancient angel coming down the hill will serve the turn. What is he, Biondella? 
master of what is that? Mark Markent Markentant. What is a Markentant? Uh, a merchant. Oh, thank you. Master, a Markentant or a pedant. I know not why, but format in apparel, in gait and countenance, surely like a father. And what of him, Tranio? If he be credulous and trust my tale, I'll make him glad to seem Vincentio, and give assurance to Baptista Minola as if he were the right Vincentio. Take in your love, and then let me alone. Brit, would you mind reading the pedant? God save you, sir, is that where we're at? Yeah. yeah. God save and, you, sir. And you, sir, you are welcome. Travel you far on, or are you at the farthest? Sir, at the farthest for a week or two, but then not farther, and as far as Rome, and as far as Rome, and so to Tripoli, if God lend me life. What countryman, I pray? Of Mantua. Of Mantua, sir? Mary, God forbid, and come to Padua, careless of your life? My life, sir, how I pray, for that goes hard. Tis death for anyone in Mantua to come to Padua. Know you not the cause? Your ships are stayed at Venice, and the Duke, for private quarrel, twixt your Duke and him, hath published and proclaimed it openly. Tis marvel, but that you are but newly come, you might have heard it else proclaimed about. Alas, sir, it is worse for me than so, for I have bills for money by exchange from Florence, and must here deliver them. Well, sir, to do you courtesy, this will I do, and this I will advise you. First, tell me, have you ever been to Pisa? I, sir, in Pisa have I often been. Pisa, renowned for grave citizens. Among them, know you one Vincentio? I know him not, but I have heard of him, and merchant of incomparable wealth. He's my father, sir, and, sooth to say, in countenance somewhat doth resemble you. As much as an apple doth an oyster, and all one. To save your life in this extremity, this favor will I do you, for his sake, and think it not the worst of of an your fortunes is that a typo it is i'm sorry of all your fortunes okay. and think and think it not the worst of all your fortunes that you are like like to serve incentio his name and credit shall you undertake and in my house you shall be friendly lodged look that you take upon you as you should you understand me sir so shall you stay till you have done your business in the city if this be courtesy sir accept it Oh, sir, I do, and will repute you ever the patron of my life and liberty. Then go with me to make the matter good. This, by the way, I let you understand. My father is here looked for every day to pass assurance of a dower in marriage twixt me and one Baptista's daughter here. In all these circumstances, I'll instruct you. Go with me to clothe you as becomes you. Okay, so... This is such a silly scene. It's, it's like what I don't understand is like this is a totally respectable marriage between Bianca, who is a wealthy woman, and Lucentio, who comes from a wealthy family. Why don't they just write to the freaking father? Like I have never <laughs> understood why they needed this whole subplot. It just doesn't make any sense it's to me. Funny, because it's, it's funny. funny, and more people in disguise. Where right? where is he from? Because she's from Padua, right? He's from yeah, they're in Padua. Um, it's from Mantua, right? That's the, the joke? Or are you saying, where's Lucentia from? Where's Lucentia from? Yeah. He says in the very beginning, he has that long speech about his origins. Yeah. Isn't he from Mantua? 
But here it says Pisa because he says, have you ever been to Pisa? Yes. Do you know this guy Vincentio? Yes. Student of Pisa. Yeah. That's a mistake. Um, oh, here it is. Florence. Florence. Vincentio's son brought up in Florence. Blah, 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 blah. So why does he? For I have Pisa left and am to Padua come. So I think he grew up in Florence. He lives in Pisa. He's now in Padua. Okay. So Pisa, renowned in four grave citizens. So there, there is there is the idea that in this time, the Italian city-states of Florence and Venice controlled their uh, local kind of regions because they were like the, the most central powers. Um, what I've just been looking at all these towns that are being used, um, Padua, Verona, Mantua, they're all within about 40 to 80 kilometers or like 20 to 30 to 40 miles of each other and all within the um, realm of influence of Venice. So mm. Florence was a competing city state politically. So if he's from Florence, um, then that's going to be, there's going to be a political opposition mm -hmm. built in between the two zones of influence. I don't know if that actually would justify having to hide, but, there's definitely yeah. like an implied difference. Well, and we get this this sense of the the Italian states and the danger from the comedy of errors, right? At the beginning, it's like if anyone from this particular, oh. so this is clearly like a trope that that, and it's kind of to me, it's also kind of implied in Twelfth Night that like wherever the twins are coming from is like not safe for them to be who they are. They kind of have to be in disguise when they're in Illyria. Yeah, they're Carol, kind of corporate ahead. control zones. Yeah. So. Yeah, corporate control zones. <laughs> well, I, I also think McDonald's that, versus Burger King. There we go. <laughs> um, the whole sort of Jeeves and Worcester comedic thing that's going on with Lucentio and his servant that Tranio is is um, Jeeves. He's the smart one. He's the one that comes up with the plan. He's yeah. the clever boots and Lucentio not so much. So um I think this plays into the comedy of that relationship. I think Tranio just has to be like the smartest person in the play. Like Tranio is just so good. He's also such a good actor, right? They all believe that he's Lucentio. Like nobody ever questions it. And even at the end of the play, when they're at, at Bianca and Lucentio's wedding speech, they're talking to Tranio as if he is a noble when he has actually been a servant this whole time, but it's almost like he's ennobled himself by playing Lucentio for this long and everyone sort of accepting him into their house as Lucentio. And then Tranio has this fantastic, I love the idea that Biondello is just like, yeah, totally. You don't look anything like him. Like Biondello is just like not helping the situation at all. And Tranio has to create a huge amount of drama and, and intrigue and sir, you know, like you can't be here. Let's get you into a house, my house. Do you want some of my clothes? Can you pretend to be my dad? You know, like all of these like crazy weird things that happen. I feel like Tranio, the more we see Tranio like playing and pretending to be an actor or not pretend like being an actor um i think the more enjoyable the the scene is for the audience because there's, there's this poor guy who's like yes yeah, my ship's in my <gasps> oh god i my life is in danger like and it's just like highly entertaining but i i think it becomes ultra entertaining if like biondello is totally unhelpful 
and Tranio is utterly competent. Like there's that also that servant dynamic, right? That, that, that both of them are not, are not super competent that one of them really is. And the other really isn't. So to me, this, this whole, this whole bit is, is, is all about contrasts, right? And it's really funny that on the subject of disguises that like half of us are not playing the roles we were assigned to. Yes. <laughs> we like For to keep it fun here. <laughs> This whole play is starting to remind me a lot of Jean Parmesan. <laughs> For anyone listening, this is a reference to Arrested Development and one of the characters who is constantly in really bad disguises. Just horrible disguises that don't disguise him at all. <laughs> Her reaction is truly my favorite part of the entire series every time he pops out and she just a joyful glee oh rest in peace oh rest in peace i know so sad um, right sorry about that anyway d- does anyone have sort of any th- like to me the biggest thing coming away from this is why on earth do they just do they not get in touch with the actual dad it seems like there is absolutely nothing scandalous about this marriage does anyone well, the, have any thoughts on that the only explanation is gremio's line earlier where he says italian foxes or whatever oh, are not yeah, an old italian kind. fox is not so kind my boy right. yeah but maybe asking a father to do that is actually asking a lot i don't know maybe they just assume he wouldn't do it yeah. Maybe it's a jerk. Who knows? But they seem to have a really good relationship too. Like when we finally do see Vincentio, a ghost from measure for measure, question mark, question mark. Um, that when we finally see Vincentio, he's like, my sweet son. And he seems like utterly devoted to his son. So it's just it's 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 a it's an incongruity to me that is clearly there for comedic effect but like logically has always bothered me because i'm like there just doesn't seem to actually you're both wealthy like your families respect each other what is the problem here like i just don't understand could it just be a timing issue that like it would take three weeks to get a letter to him and like they just don't want to wait that long potentially italy's small though italy's really small <laughs> like that devastating scene in the in the Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet where like there's the monk, the monk getting yeah. off of the donkey with the letter and then you see Romeo riding out of out of wherever he is and you're like no so there's always the possibility that Tranio is actually enjoying the relationship switch and would like to prolong it and there are a yeah. few little textual evidences that he oh, I love has that. that he's looking forward to that and, and is enjoying it. Yeah. I love that Bianca sort of is like my sweet Lucentio. The like there's this sort of like she's playing along with with Tranio as Lucentio. And I think that that is indicated later in Act Four when Baptiste is like, oh yeah, she loves Tranio Lucentio. Like that that she's actually pretending to be in love with Tranio whenever he visits the house so that Baptista thinks that she really does want to. It's just so complicated. It's like, guys, like just have a conversation. This is ridiculous. Wait, <laughs> weird about that moment is aren't they the only ones on stage it's tranio bianca and lucentio and yet they're still like they all know that they're not who they say they are but they're all like in character yeah i mean like they don't drop the act when the other person leaves they're still i get the 
I get the sense that it's like a playful thing. Yeah. yeah. I think he has, Trani has dropped it, but he's, but they're having fun with it. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's the only way to play that. Yeah. Uh, Koi, go ahead. I've just been doing a little half-assed internet research here. Um, on Always love the- that. Yeah, on the political structure of the Italian peninsula in the Renaissance. And yeah, the Republic of Florence, the Republic of Venice were two um, competing republics. Um, and uh, slightly under 100 years before, like mid-late 1400s, Florence had wanted to ally with Venice. And Venice was like, nah, we ain't doing that. And around the 1500s was when Machiavelli lived and died. And at one point, the Pope actually had to come in and say, like, hey, uh, the republics of Italy shouldn't fight each other. So there was some like there was a lot of tension going on. You had the papal state, the Naples, um, Siena, Florence, Moderna, Milano, Venice, like all these were all around each other. Venice and Milan were fighting and uh, they were all trying to kind of ally with each other to then be able to get stronger and fight the others. And, you know, it's, it's a corporate espionage and corporate, you know, like trying to make a partnership so that you can screw the other people over. So um, if if we're saying that Lucencio is Florentine, um, he comes from a political entity that might not be actively an enemy of the Venetian Republic, but something that he's not um, an inherent ally necessarily. Mm. And his position of being uh, a person of status from this other political entity might be something that uh, prevents him from having an opportunity. That's I, I I like that idea that there's a political complication when it gets because as we see in the history plays, as we saw with the the five history plays that we've done so far with this project, that the uh, the political implications of marriage unions are really really important to wealthy and powerful families. Mm-hmm. However, the one thing that I keep going back to is that when Lucentio meets or Tranio as Lucentio meets Baptista. Baptista's like, ah, yes, of course. I know and I've heard of your father. You are welcome to my It reminds home, me though of what what you're saying though also reminds me of of how Capulet responds to Romeo, right? Like yeah. like uh one individual like the uh Capulet can see Romeo at the party and say, Oh, that's Romeo, he's a good kid. We shouldn't we shouldn't have a problem with him. But Capulet yeah. clearly has an issue with the Montagues. Yeah. It's just like Absolutely. in this like that's so there's point. also like how much is being political and being nice and you know, yeah, you can you can apply for this if you'd like. No, totally. I would love to have your application. Yeah. Um, but you're not actually gonna be considered. Um yeah, I think a lot of just it's so it's one of those lovely things about uh, that dramaturges are useful for, right? Because there's so much that any audience at the time would just know. Like if we were to place something today and set a different, if we were to say, okay, this person is the CEO of McDonald's and this person is the CFO of Burger King and this person is Google and Amazon, like uh, we would be able to, any, any modern audience, would there be a lot of built-in implied relationships He's well, from Silicon Valley. He's from this, right? Where it's, we don't have a lot of that unless we're actual historians. I, I would argue that I don't actually believe that a lot of the English would have a lot of knowledge about the Italian yeah. peninsula and that frequently when Shakespeare wanted to create, he sets a, so many of the plays in Italy, it was sort of this catch-all as like, 
I can't set this in my country. It's too politically dangerous. I'll set it in Italy where everyone knows everything is. It's like modern Hollywood movies doing like, ah, he's in the country of Kablakistan. Like, <laughs> just make up some random country in that region that nobody really knows the geography anyways. Yeah. Uh, get away with it. But, Looking at you, West Wing but, with Kundu and Kumar. Yeah, right. Yeah. The English would, would, it seems they, they had the sense though, that like the Italians, basically what was going on there was that everybody was fighting everybody else. And like these city states were all at war with each other and they could kind of use that to dramatic effect, even though Shakespeare had never been there and probably nobody who was seeing his plays had ever been there. They, they sort of had that sense of it, right? I, I, I think so. But I think also it's just important to note that this in Elizabethan and this would be Elizabethan England, um, the nobility was constantly fighting and had rivalries and stuff. So I think all of this is really to say these are wealthy people, <laughs> first world it's, wealthy people problems, in many, right? <laughs> yeah, in many ways, Italy was a more extreme version of the like the, the English uh, different households dukedoms all kind of fighting and competing mm -hmm. under the king or queen uh, in Italy because it was a kind of technically the papal states but these yeah. republics were also their own entities so the a lot of rivalry it was, it was a more extreme version right the the political entities of, of the republic of florence and venice had more independence than any of the dukes or uh counts under the king of england so yeah. you could play up those differences of the petty regional tyrants yeah you make them more extreme because in italy they were more extreme Absolutely. Well, wonderful. So we have worked our way through the first two scenes of Act Four. And so in our next episode, we will be finishing the act with a, a few more scenes to sort of sketch out the, the dynamics of the Petruchio Caterina household. Um, thank you all so very much.